Well, good morning, Hepzibah. If you will turn in the Bible with me into 1 Corinthians. We're going to be looking this morning, uh, still in chapter 1, as we've begun this series in the book of 1 Corinthians, where we're, we're dealing with the issue and the topic uh, today of diversity. Not diversity in the sense of uh, the differences uh, necessarily that we think of normally when we think diversity and we have a discussion, but the fact that, you know what, we live in a culture, we live in a, in a church where all of us have different gifts, all of us have different thoughts, all of us have different ideas, all of us have different loves and passions, and the reality is that most of us come into a body of believers like this, and we're looking for a place that is unified, that within our diversity, that there is unity. And as Paul wrote to the book of first, or I'm sorry, wrote to the people in the place at Corinth, we told you last week that Paul was going to be dealing with a lot of topics and a lot of issues. Last week we got through basically the introduction of the book where Paul was speaking to the church. He was reaffirming his prayers, his love for them. He was letting them know uh, how much he had seen that the God had been working and moving through this people. We know that Paul founded this church. We know that he had been away for some time. And we know that word came to Paul that this church that was once thriving and when he left seemed to be doing so well, now they were at a point of great struggle. And he's going to address today the first struggle. And that is that this church was starting to be divided. And I can't think of a more important issue to deal with as a church family than this issue of division within a church. Christ calls the body to be unified. When we think about this body, I hope that you realize that we're talking about a family. I hope that you're realizing that when you look right or left to you this morning, that there are those people that they're not just uh, random people who've come in off the streets. These are people that both share the love that you have for Jesus Christ. They know him, many in this room, to Jesus to be Lord and Savior of their life. And that makes you more than just a group of random strangers. This makes you family in this place. A church this large, sometimes it's hard to remember that because there are new faces every week. And every week we, we come and, and we see people leaving the first service and coming into the second service. And, and we, we fail to see that, you know what, even though we may not know their names, even though... We may not know a lot about the people that may even be in the service that we're sitting in. The reality is that we make up one body. I think when you get into this book this morning, as we study verses 10 through 17, you're going to see the seeds of some things that, that really have come to haunt us as a modern church. Uh, you're going to see things, I think, like denominationalism, that these are the seedbeds of, of how denominations began to come about. I think you're going to see uh, in here that, that one of the things we have to understand as a body of believers is that unity is something not that we take for granted. It shouldn't be something that we expect will always be because as I look at Hepzibah, I'm proud to lead a church that in so many ways is unified, but we're 213 years old. I can tell you there have been times where the church has been very unified and I can tell you there have been times when this church has not been unified at all. Unity is not something that just happens. Unity is something that we have to fight for. Unity is something that we've got to pay attention. It's something that has to be kept. And so I want to encourage us this morning to understand the importance of this issue of unity. We'll begin in chapter 1, verses 10 through 17. Let me read it to you. It says, Now I exhort you, brothers... 
Okay, so he's going to give us an encouragement, and I want you to underline the word brother there. We're going to come across it in verse 11 again. He says, I want to encourage you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree. Now, right there, some of you are like, what? How in the world can we have a passage in Scripture that says that we as a body of believers can get to a place that we all agree or that we all speak the same thing? We're going to talk about that today, and I want you to understand that we're not nearly as divided as we think. He exhorts us in the name of Jesus that you agree and that there be no divisions among you, that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. For I have been informed concerning you, brethren, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. Now I mean this, that each of you is saying, I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, I am of Cephas, I am of Christ. Has Christ been divided? Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one would say that you were baptized into my name. Uh, I'm sorry, verse 16. Now I did baptize also the household of Stephanas. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized any other. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ would not be made void. When we consider denominations, most of us fail to understand what denominations are really meant to be. When most of us think about denominations, it's almost like we immediately want to ask the questions, well, which ones are are really churches? And are there churches besides Baptist churches? And if we're not Baptist, does that mean that we're not Christians or we're not a church? And the reality is that across the spectrum, we look and we see these things called denominations. Now, when you understand what that means, think about it as a banking term. When I go on mission trips, I have to take petty cash with me and I go to the bank and there may be a $500 check And I say, I need this cashed. And they're going to say, what? What denominations would you like these in? That basically means that, you know what? I can have it in fives. I can have it in tens. I can have it in twenties. I can have it in $100 bills. And the reality is that the sum of all the bills, whether they're hundreds, twenties, or fives, when you put them all together, they're going to make up the whole, right? That at the end, no matter how you divvy that up, even if you used ones, I'm going to have 500 ones. It is the makeup of all the parts to make up the whole. And so when we think about denominations, even in Christianity, there is a reality that, folks, I want you to understand, all of us make up a universal church. We go to places like the Philippines and Africa, and we're not even concerned about all the issues of, is this a Southern Baptist church? That question isn't even asked most times over there. The reality is we have to come to a place where we understand that, you know what, as believers in Jesus Christ, we have brothers and sisters all around the world We have brothers and sisters that make up churches that are right down the road, that are right up the the road in different counties, that are right up the road in different states, that are right up the road in our country and around the world. There is a church that is going forward, and it is called the church, not just Baptist, not just Methodist, not just Pentecostal or whatever other denomination that you want to think of and come up with. All that it means is that all of these people that many of these denominations, they hold to the truth. They believe that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior. They believe that God is His Father, that He sent His Son to die on the cross for our sins. There is an understanding, there is a belief in the main things that are the main things that make them a true Christian church. But sadly... 
Anytime that you bring people into the mix, which that is exactly what the church is, we're going to find that factions, divisions, splits, as the word today is going to be used, schisms. And I think that what we see is that this rise of even something as simple as what we would call denominationalism really finds its roots even back here in the Corinthian church. Folks, I want you to hear me when I say this. Without unity, we have no basis by which to make an impact for the gospel of Jesus Christ in our world today. It's why Jesus cared so much about unity. It's why he spoke so often about unity. It's why Christ wanted the church to come together and be unified because if we don't love one another, then the world will never know that we are his disciples. As we look into the Word this morning, I want to start with how did Paul come to find out about these schisms, these divisions, these groups, these factions that had formed at the church in Corinth? Well, we find that literally he found out because of a woman named Chloe and her household. In verse 11 it says, I've been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people. Most likely they were some of her servants who went to Paul and said to Paul, you know what, we need you to know, Paul, that since you left, things haven't been good. They haven't been right, and we need you to come back. We need help. We need you to write a letter. We need you to do something to help us get healthy again because right now the church at Corinth is in trouble. Now, most of us, when we hear that somebody like Chloe has told on us, we go to the term that we almost hold to the same level of the Bible where we say, you know what, that ain't right. Snitches get what? Snitches get stitches, right? We love that saying. And we want to think that, you know what, people have an obligation to us to never share with another person the struggles that we may be having. That we're, when we're in sin, we act like, you know what, the responsibility of every person around us is to maybe they know we're sinning. Maybe they might say something to us, but their job is to protect us. Their job is to cover us. Their job is to say nothing to anybody about the struggles that I have. But folks, I want to tell you, that is foreign to Scripture. There is a truth and there is a reality that, guess what? All snitches shouldn't get stitches. There is a truth and a reality that when it comes to discipline because of issues going on in a church, that the Bible says that, yes, first and foremost, what is your main responsibility? That you go to the person. And I think it's probably rightly assumed that Chloe and her people probably did go and try to deal with the problems that this church was having, the factions, the divisions. But as the church continued to get more and more unhealthy, no doubt she probably talked to another and said, listen, we've got to address this situation. And whether it kept getting worse or worse, it has gotten to the point that she had the courage. Now listen to what I say, the courage and the conviction to go to another person like the Apostle Paul and to say, we've got a problem that we can't seem to solve. Can you come back and help us? Can you write? Can you do something to help us get healthy again? And folks, I want you to understand, we snitch for different reasons, don't we? There are some people that snitch to get revenge, right? They got in trouble, so what are they going to make sure of? Now, you got in trouble too. They're going to tell because they want you to face the same penalty or the same punishment. Maybe they did something to you, so you take a secret that, they've been, or that you've been holding and you just blab it out there because maybe they told a secret of yours. Maybe you were struggling and, and, and you told them something and they blabbed it, so you're just going to go and tell it and you don't have right motives. That's not a reason to do it. 
Sometimes it's not about revenge. Sometimes it's about getting out of consequences. Most times, I think, when we think about this idea of snitches getting stitches, we think about it in prisons, don't we? We think about it when you're sitting down with a lawyer. And the thought of the idea is that, you know what, I'm going to tell on you so that you get in trouble, so that I'm in less trouble, so that, you know what, if I tell on you, if I say that you did this crime, they're going to let me off. There are people that that's exactly why they do it. There are selfish reasons and selfish motives that make us want to tell on other people. Sometimes snitching just really is another form of gossip. There are some people that love to talk about the troubles of other people. Whether it makes them feel more righteous, I don't know what the reason is why most people choose to do this, but there are many people that love to spill the beans on everybody else because they just want to be in the know and they want to let everybody else know that they know and they just like to, I guess, talk about the suffering and the problems and the struggles of other people. None of those are good reasons to do it. But folks, I do want to tell you that there comes a time in the life of believers that there is a snitching that you know what it seeks to help. And that's what the Apostle Paul is talking about here. That's why he really is mentioning Chloe's name. And I find it interesting because most people, when they snitch on someone, when they go and finally have to say, listen, this person's in over their head. They're struggling with an addiction. This person, we've gone to them, and, and yet we can't find a way for them to, to see the need to repent. And they're still struggling. We need you to come and help alongside. I can't tell you how many times in ministry, most times people that come to me like that, they're saying this. They're basically saying, oh, you can go talk to them. And I say, okay, that's great. Can I tell them that you came to me, what's their immediate response? No. Well, I want to say to them, you know what? What are you? Am I supposed to be clairvoyant? Am I supposed to just walk up and say, I had a dream. I, I dreamed that you were in sin and it was a pretty specific dream. And then I just go into the whole thing. What are they going to do? They're going to look at me and they're going to wonder who snitched on me? Who is it that told you that? And that causes its own set of issues. I love the person that has the courage and loves another person enough to confront sin. Now, again, you heard me say, there is a way to do it. We go to a brother first. And if it can't be resolved, then we go and we take someone else with us. And then we may take the elders or a deacon. And then we may bring it before the church, all of it, so that this person can repent and be reconciled back to the body of believers. But I want you to know that most of us in this room, if we're not careful, we don't have the courage to help someone that we know is struggling. The most frustrating thing, you ask any pastor... It is so frustrating when we get to a point where we see that a life is decimated. That, that by the time we get involved in something, the divorce has already occurred. The relationships are already broken. Maybe someone is already sitting in jail. Maybe someone is already being prosecuted. And we come to find out this information. It is inevitable that somebody in the church will walk up to me and say, Well, you know what, Pastor Aaron? And I know what's coming and I can feel my blood boil. I've known about that for months. Do we love people if we watch their life self-destruct and do nothing? I can tell you this. I would rather all of you be mad at me because I snitched on you than have to stand up here and do your funeral. If you love someone, how can you 
watch their life self-destruct. Folks, there are times that we've got to engage brothers and sisters in what I would call confrontation. Again, that's not a four-letter word. Confrontation doesn't have to be ugly. You don't have to be a jerk when you confront a person. You can actually just go, and as we are going to see here in a minute, and really it's my second point, is we can learn how to speak the truth in love. There is a way to confront people. Love must accompany the truth. When we go and we seek to engage another person in the sins that maybe they're stuck in, they're committed in. And folks, I want you to remember this. Christians struggle. Can we say that? Can we believe that? Can we know that? Because some of us won't accept it for ourselves. And it's even harder to accept it for other people. Because most of us, we forget what it's like maybe to be a new believer. New believers don't have it all together, church. They are trying to go from what was a worldly mentality or the way that they've always lived their life. There is a change. There is a transition. There is a new life in them that they are trying to live out what Jesus Christ has done in their life. And not everybody is at the same place on the journey that you are. And that's okay. The biggest part of discipling someone is meeting them where they are. How many times did Jesus speak and the disciples just didn't get it? Aren't you glad Jesus didn't go, well, you know what? I got a bunch of dummies around me. I don't even know if y'all believe in me. I don't even know if you care about me. I don't even know. I don't even know. I don't even know. Listen, that wasn't how Jesus responded to them. One of the greatest things that you can learn as a believer in Jesus Christ, and I mean pray about it, I mean ask God for it, how do you learn to speak truth in love? I think Paul gives us a hint to this in the text because I told you to underline brothers both in verse 10 and verse 11, and it's interesting because he, he uses that term twice because I think he wants, number one, for us to, to, to remember this fact that we are family. Don't forget that we are family. Whatever we're facing, whatever we're going through, we are family. And when we say that we are family, we are supposed to be committed to each other, aren't we? What kind of a parent doesn't discipline their child? And before you say, well, Aaron, I don't want to hear your opinion on that, well, let me tell you what God says about that. He says it's directly connected to the love that you have to your child. That a parent who loves disciplines. And a parent who refuses to discipline and refuses to address the needs, the, the needs of a maturing child, helping them grow and understand who God is and who they are and how they fit into this picture of this world and how they glorify God and how they're obedient to Him. Our job is to help our children grow in maturity. And folks, I don't know about you, there's no one I'm more committed to than my family, than to my children. And so sometimes we got to step back and realize that you know what, how do we get to a place where in a room like this we consider other people around us enemies? Or we get so frustrated that we say, I don't want to be part of church if you're in this church. Twice, Paul says, I'm talking to brothers here. Number one, I think he wanted them to understand that I see you that way. I love you. I'm not just coming in to try to tell you what to do. I'm not just coming in 
indifferent to your plight or indifferent to your life or I could care less. I just, you know what, maybe you're tarnishing my name. I mean, there are some people that probably that's the way we think about it. You know what, when somebody else screws up, it looks bad on me. This was a church that Paul played. That, none of that came into effect. For Paul, he just wants them to know, you are my brothers. You are my sisters. I love you and I can't stand by to watch you struggle, to watch you be divided. I think Paul understood something that we've got to grasp too, that how we say something is as important as what we say. Let that sink in a second. You can be right and wrong all at the same time. You can have the truth and you've spoken the truth, but you've spoken it in such a way that there is not a soul that would have ever received it because of the way that you spoke it. Most of us would do well in our marriages and in every relationship if we would step back and say, what is the best way for me to communicate this so that they hear it, so that they get it? Not so that I feel better. Not so that at the end of the day I can say I was right. In fact, I'm going to take me off the table and my only concern is going to be them. It would change the way we approach most hard conversations. But we got to step back and recognize, I love them, their family, and secondarily, you know what? How I say this is going to matter every bit as much as what I'm about to say. And thirdly, packaging a difficult conversation is important. Paul, over and over throughout the New Testament Scriptures, it's interesting because he always starts with the positive, and then he gets into the issues that he's facing, and then he comes back around and he encourages, encourages them again. I loved, Larry Lindsay was the best at this. I got a letter from Larry Lindsay one time. I don't remember what it was, and he was probably busy. I didn't really take personal offense to it. I just remember that he wrote me this letter one day, and it was just like to the point. It was boom, 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 whatever it was, whether it was me or the church. I, I really don't remember what it was. But it just kind of caught me off guard. And you know, like most of us, if we go to full frontal assault at people, you ever notice how when people do that, your defenses go up? And you immediately can't hear what's being said. And I remember I was fighting that urge because whatever he said, it was just quick and to the point. And I said to Larry, you know, a couple days later, he said, did you get my email? And I said, I did. And he said, what'd you think? And I said, well, I, I, let me give you some advice. I said, when you write somebody something difficult, this is when he had just started on staff with us here. I said, when, you, when you're writing something difficult, the best thing that you can do is sandwich it. I said, because if you're going to ask me to swallow something that's hard to swallow, put some bread on it. Give me something, right? And he's like, okay. For the rest of Larry's life, you know what he did? Every letter that I ever received from Larry Lindsay from that point on, here is how it started. Pastor Aaron, I hope you're having a great day. I love you. You're a great pastor. And then he would go into whatever the issue was, and then he would finish every single letter the same way. It would say, I hope you have a great day. You're a patriot and a good American. <laughs> Listen, it didn't matter what he said in between. At that point, I was laughing every time I read it. And I was able to absorb and deal with the real issues that he needed face that he needed dealt with. But most times we get in our own way because of the way we handle the things that need to be said. How you say something is every bit as important as what it is that you were about to say. So all snitches, listen, they should not get stitches. 
Secondly, love must accompany the truth. And thirdly, Paul is trying to tell them, listen, we have an issue, and here's the issue. Division can be deadly. For a church body, division can be deadly. We know the nature of this division because of the writings that Paul gave us and what he says in these verses. He says, I've been informed that you guys are fighting. And beyond just having some fights over issues, he said, you guys have divided up into factions. And he, he tells us, he says, some of you are out there. Like if it was today, it'd be like, you know what, I'm, I'm hashtag uh, Paul. I'm team Paul. I'm team Apollos. I'm team Cephas, which is Peter. I, I'm team Jesus. And all these factions were starting to form within the church, and some of them, there were probably two reasons that they were forming. Some of them were legitimate theological reasons. And as we study the Bible, haven't you ever... I mean, here's the deal. If we grasp who we are, especially as Baptists, three Baptists in a room have six opinions. And I will agree with myself today and probably disagree with myself when? Tomorrow. Why? Because we're growing. Because believe it or not... All of us can be wrong. And it takes a while to see it. And it takes a while to understand it. And we're all in process. And so this church, listen, there are, and I want you to hear me. I don't want anybody going out of this room saying anything other than what I'm about to say. There are things that we have to stand together on, the person and work of Jesus Christ, right? The reality, the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ, right? Our understanding of salvation in Christ, His substitutionary atonement for our sins, there are certain things that we have to agree on. But some of us, we act like if we don't agree on everything, then we can't walk together. And there are primary things, and then there are things in life that are secondary or tertiary things, and then we have those things that they're just preference. We can paint this room the color of a rainbow. I've seen churches fight and divide over paint schemes, over buildings, over building programs, over worship styles. Folks, that's not what God has for us. Uh, that's not what God is desiring. How do we learn to make the main things the main things and not get divided over issues that don't really matter. Most churches that today, I want you to hear me, that are having to close their doors, it is because they refuse to live in any form of unity. They are so fighting themselves over what they should do and who they should be and what they should do for the community and what kind of worship should they have and what kind of buildings and do we focus on children or do we focus on adults or do we focus on senior adults? And all these things come into the equation and we bicker and we fight and we become divided. Theology, if we're not careful... We let the smallest bits and pieces of it. We don't give any room for growth, any room for a growing understanding. Sometimes it's just personality divisions. The way it looks in churches today is, I mean, listen, if you want to clear a church, many times all you have to do is just let everybody know in advance. Have you ever noticed I never announce I'm not going to be here next week? You know why? Because some of y'all act like if I'm not here, then you shouldn't have to be here. 
Nothing drives me crazier than when I put up one of our new young pastors up here to give them a chance to preach and to grow and to cut their teeth as a pastor. Do you think we come out of the womb like speaking well? Like we come out of the womb and we're suddenly like, you know, let me preach to you 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And, and you guys are just like amazed because this little baby preached a sermon. That is not how it works. All of us are growing. We rely on the Spirit of God to speak in us and through us. But here is the thing. We all have personalities. And guess what? They're going to be different. We all have styles in which we preach. And guess what? They're all going to be different. And what happens in churches? We start to say, you know what? I'm following this guy. Or I'm following that guy. Or I'm following this guy because I like that he does this and I like that he does that. And we start to see the church fracture over even something like personalities. And Paul wants to speak to this. Listen, we get mad at the government, don't we? Because we think, you know what, the government is so filled with party lines and there's so much focus on what we disagree on or, or what separates us that we can't seem to get anything done as a country. You ever feel frustrated about that? Let me ask you a question. Why do we do it as churches? We shake our fist at the government. Most churches are no better. We can't go forward because of all the infighting. We can't go forward many times. Now, folks, again, I want you to hear me. I do not believe that is the current condition of this church. But it could be. If we don't guard it, if we don't keep it, guess what? We can come off this mountain and we can go right back down into a valley. And we have to recognize these things and we've got to prioritize the things that keep unity. Because for them, they said, listen, some of you were of Paul. That meant, and, and I believe the reason for some of these differences, listen, Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles. Probably the people that were wanting to follow him were probably Gentiles. They probably weren't the Jews. The Jews probably got frustrated when Paul said, you don't have to obey the law to be a Jew. Or, I'm sorry, you don't have to be, obey the law to be a Christian. There were probably many Jews there that probably questioned or may not have fully liked Paul's theology because he talked so much about freedom in Christ. And no doubt when you preach freedom in Christ, there's always the danger of people taking advantage of that freedom and they don't realize that Christ died and made us free so that we don't have to sin, not making us free so that we can keep on sinning. There's a big difference in those two things. And no doubt there were probably people that accused Paul and were saying, you know what, look at how he preaches freedom. They took his words and they would twist his words. What did Paul believe about the freedom we have in Christ? He said, what, do we go on sinning so that Christ's grace may abound? Is that what we should do? Do we just sin more and more so we can get more and more grace? What was Paul's answer to that? By no means, but I can guarantee you there were people that probably laid at the feet of Paul. That's what he's teaching. That's what he's preaching. Doesn't matter how you live as a Christian. We over here, you follow the law to the T. Then you had the followers of Peter. And that was like the opposite extreme. Because no doubt these were probably made up of Jews who their thinking was, you know what, we, we, tend to, we tend to lean not toward license. License is, you know what, you can keep on sinning so that grace may abound. When you talk about legalism, you're swinging back to the other ditch. These are two extreme positions. And it wasn't the positions that these apostles held, but no doubt they probably had been maligned. Because of course, when you look at Simon Peter, when you look at his teachings... When you look at where he always positioned himself within this 
debate over do we have to be legalistic? Do we have to obey the law and be circumcised and be a Jew to be a Christian? You always had, I mean, you got Paul over here, and you got Peter kind of over here, and everybody's probably trying to drag them to the ditches. When what they're trying to say is, listen, license isn't good, legalism isn't good, Put your hope and your faith in Christ that He can change you. You're a Christian because you are in Christ. And He didn't make you a Christian so you could keep sinning. He made you a Christian so that you could stop sinning and follow Him. But people lined up to follow one of these men. Then you have Apollos, which what we believe about Apollos was most likely he was an Alexandrian from Egypt. This place was known for its intellectualism. Probably he may well have been the best preacher out of the three, and maybe that was the reason so many people followed him, because he spoke so well. We don't know. It's just the hint that we have over in Acts chapter 18. But for whatever reason, they wanted to say, I'm a follower of Apollos, and that's probably the reason, his intellectualism. And then there were those that said, we're of Christ, and that one on the surface seems like the one. That's the good one, right? But folks, even that one can be maligned. You do realize that, right? These people that said, well, I am of Christ, uh, again, Paul is trying to say that there is these factions and these divisions, and there's something unhealthy even in those because these were probably the people that leaned towards self-righteousness, that small, rigid sect of people who probably claimed that they were the only Christians in Corinth. You ever meet a person like this? They're the one that always tries to Jesus juke you. They may be that person that, you know what, every time you disagree, their first response is, you know what, I don't even know if they're saved. Or maybe somebody has to step out of ministry for some reason, and the first thing is, well, you know what, I don't even know if they're saved. That's, that's not of God. That's not what God asks of us. We're not judging the hearts and lives of men because they're struggling or because they're hurting. Or because their life is transitioning and they're growing into who they're supposed to be in Christ. And listen, it is a journey, but there are those people, that, and some of them, listen, it's easy when you disagree theologically. Sometimes we just throw all of it out. It's a secondary issue. It's a preference issue. But immediately we start to say, you know what, they're not serious about their walk with Jesus. I don't even know if they're saved. It's that group of people that ultimately they come to decide who is in Christ <laughs> and who is not in Christ. They don't belong as much to Christ as Christ they think belongs to them. Chuck Swindoll probably said it best when he recounted a little piece that was written that he said becomes the battle cry for so many. He wrote, believe as I believe, no more, no less, that I am right and no one else, you must confess. Feel as I feel and think only as I think, eat what I eat and drink what I drink, look as I do, do always as I do, and then, and only then, will I fellowship with you. Is that biblical unity? <laughs> Is that what Christ asks of us? But listen, in so many ways, it's so easy to get back to that place.
I wish it was always theology. Sometimes it is as simple as carpets and paint color. I can describe it for you a little more in today's terms, since most of us here wouldn't say, I'm of Paul, I'm of Cephas, I'm of Apollos, and I'm of Christ. But here's how it looks most times. We have our churches full of people that love good things, and and this is what I meant earlier about diversity. There are some people that they love to study the Bible. And, And how could anybody say that's a wrong thing? They believe that if a church should be doing anything, you just have Bible study, Bible study, Bible study, Bible study, Bible study, Bible study. And they think that, you know what, religion and and our closeness to God has to do with how many Bible studies we can take any given week. And if you love to come and do 50 million Bible studies, then you're godly. If you don't, then guess what? You're just a hypocrite or you're just lost or you just don't love Jesus as much as them. So you got the Bible reading guy. Sometimes in churches we get the emotional guy or girl. And when I say emotional, I mean, or maybe the best way to put it is the experiential. That they come to church every week and what they're looking for in services is an experience. They want to leave with the goosebumps, right? So that means you've got to have this kind of music and we've got to have this kind of thing that makes me leave feeling like I've got a million goosebumps and all good and all this other stuff. And so they would say, you know what, there's no room in a church for you to preach in a way that actually might convict a person because then I might leave convicted and that's not fun. Then you got the missions evangelism guy. So far, I haven't said anything that, you know, I mean, I'll be honest. I want to experience God when I'm in a place. I want to leave full after worship. I also believe missions and evangelism is important, like I do reading the Bible. But there are some people that are so passionate, they really believe that the only thing a church should be doing, the only thing, is just focused on going out and planting churches and going out and just sending people around the world on mission. And what they fail to realize is that if we don't have the Bible study, we don't offer genuine, authentic worship that they can come and be part of as they're growing in their relationship with Christ, we'll never get them to that point. And some say, no, I'm a discipleship guy. And some are going to say, no, I'm a social justice guy. I think the church ought to be feeding the poor and going out and doing things in our community for those who are less fortunate. And if the church isn't doing that, then the church isn't doing anything. And on and on and on we go. And we get, you see how these factions develop? And then we start to say, if you don't think like me, if your priorities aren't my priorities, then you know what? We can't walk together anymore. That's the beauty of diversity. Do you see the picture that I just painted for you? There is not one thing in that list that we talked about. You can say the prayer guy. You can, say, you can throw all the things in there. The beauty is that Christ is looking at us and he's saying yes to every single one of those things. And he's saying, I gave you John because his heart is missions and evangelism. I gave you Kevin because his heart is worship. And helping you sit before the throne of God and prepare your heart for what you're going to receive so that it's not the music and all the things that drive you to the goosebumps as much as we sat in this place in God's presence and heard his word, heard his voice, and we got to respond in praise and prayer. You pull in the people like a Vicki Tindall who loves the community and can't get enough of just going out 
and being generous in the lives of people who need help. You see, what makes us think we just need one of those things? And if it's not important to you as it is to me, then you're not important. What drives us to do that? Instead of saying, look at the beauty and all of the diversity. And that when all of this comes together as a body of believers, you know what? There's always going to be these groups that are more passionate about certain things over than others. But you know what? They're not our enemy. They are part of the body. And that just means some are feet. And that just means that some are hands. And that just means that some are eyes. And that just means that some are brains. And that just means that some are whatever's in there. If you're going to write something down, write this down. Diversity is not a sin, but division is. We must be united on basic issues of faith, but we can and should be flexible, dare I say, tolerant on secondary issues. I hope you realize that when the people of God inside the church fight, the reputation of the church suffers and God's glory is tarnished. The best thing we can do with many of these differences that are not the the core of what we believe as believers in Jesus Christ, there are days that, you know what, we need to put aside our differences and focus on the main thing, the glory of God. Lastly, the fix for disunity. Here's another way to say it. How do we find unity or what's the fix for disunity? He says it right here in this text. In verse 10, he says, brothers, listen. By the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, he says, I want you to agree. The first fix for this disunity is to find agreement. It's the picture and the idea of two hostile parties that come together for an agreement. And you say, well, that's not possible. Listen, it better be or you're going to be horrible parents. You know, the biggest issue with parenting is that you've got two people that God has made what? One, are you guys just alike? Spouses? I mean, do you think the same? Do you act the same? Do you agree on every topic? Like if we throw out discipline, it's like complete harmony. It's like you finishing each other's sentences. Or how often should we go on a date? You're finishing each other's sentences. Oh my gosh, look, do you hear the birds chirping? We just agreed every single time. Is that how life is? No, it's why the Bible talks about being yoked together. That we have Christ in us that draws us together. And we as people, whether it's our marriage, whether it's in our churches, we got to find a way for different people to walk together. But here's what we love as people. We love ditches. We love the extreme positions. And most of us won't take the time to talk to another person and say, well, you know what, maybe I'm being a little hard. You know what, maybe I'm being a little too firm on that issue. Well, you know what, maybe there's another way to do it than the way I was raised to do it. 
Maybe grandma doesn't actually know it all. And I just say that to mean that, you know what? You have two homes that you guys came out of. You got two grandmas that love Jesus, two grandmas that love their families, two grandmas that just discipline differently. Are we willing to stop and to back up and to find ways that we can come to agreement on issues that aren't thus saith the Lord? On issues of things like pornography, homosexuality, on cultural issues where the Bible says that sin is sin, we're going to call it sin. And we're not going to compromise those truths on what God has said clearly in His Word. But how many things, how many other things are we unwilling to do that about? If you want to know secondary issues that make us stumble in churches, it can be things like the mode of baptism. And again, now let me say this. I am a Baptist because I believe in baptism by immersion. That's why I go to a Baptist church. But it doesn't give me the right to stand up here and say, you know what, if you go to a church that doesn't baptize by full immersion, you know what, you guys are heathens and you're going to hell and you don't love Jesus. It's funny because every pastor at some point, because we've been taught and told so much that it's such a big deal, such a dividing issue. You ever have those moments, Scott Keller, maybe some others, where you know what? You put a kid under the water and kids are squirmers. And you know what? They don't have any body fat, most of them. And so guess what they do? They float. No, they float, man. If you don't tell them put their feet in the bottom of the baptismal, you lay them back and it's almost like you've got to two-hand them down like that if their feet don't get in, in in a corner. And I remember times thinking, you know what? I think that kid's forehead didn't go under. Why would I panic about that? I mean, why is it that I got to think like, oh, you know what? We got to do it again. And, and you know, I... isn't that a crazy thought? That somehow the baptism was less than because their hair didn't get totally wet. We're silly sometimes, aren't we? Let's say you have a real deal with baptism. And you realize as you're growing in your faith that, you know what, maybe your theology and some of the things that are important to you take a different turn than where you presently are. You realize you can leave that church on good terms, right? Novel, isn't it? That you can decide to disagree and maybe these are tenets of what they believe And you can just walk away and be pleasant. You can walk away and love that pastor. You can walk away and know that those people really do love Jesus every bit as much as you. They just have a disagreement on a secondary issue. And you don't have to go around town and say, well, let me tell you why I don't go to that church anymore. And say, you know what? We may have disagreed on some things theologically, but those people love Jesus and they they weren't the foundational things. But as I've grown, this is where I feel I need to be. And I love both of these churches. Baptism. The frequency of communion is always debated. Theories about the end times. Churches split over that stuff. 
Factions are formed over that stuff. I can't wait till we get there and we realize how wrong we were half the time. Styles of worship, expression of spiritual gifts. Oh, this is the big one. Preferred versions of the Bible. Let me go ahead and tell you for the record, I don't care. Just read it. I don't care. Pick one. Just read it. I have some preferences. I have some thoughts. If you want to know them, come and ask me. But you know what? I'm not going to complain if you'll pick one up. Church polity. The way we govern all those things. I believe it's wrong the number of times we fight over these differences of opinion. Over issues of preference many times that aren't even biblical issues. Because folks, there's room for diversity in the body of Christ. And Christ is going to sort these things out. Secondly, beyond find agreement, be knit together. That's what he means when he says have no divisions or that word schisms there. Literally, he's saying, you know what? You need to be knit together like bones that have been fractured, like joints that have been dislocated. Christ's desire is to bring us back together so that we can be healthy, so that we as a body can accomplish the thing that he's called us to do. And not just finding agreement and being knit together and finding a way to walk together and to be healed from the divisions. But I think also he deals with the fact, he says, to find common ground in Christ. That's what he means in verse 10 when he says, but you should be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. He's saying that you need to be united in mind and thought. And I love how he pulls it together here at the end where, you know, when we think about where we find our common ground, it's not really meant to be in our preferences or our likes or even our own thoughts. If we really want to see a unified body of believers, then let's get in the word together and let's discuss, let's talk, let's grow in our faith together. Because as I yield to the spirit of God in my life, Again, you've heard me say it many times. I'm going to stand in the pulpit and preach. If you want me to bring unity to this church, that's the best thing I can do for you. And then you say, well, how's that going to guarantee unity? It's not. What you do with it will determine unity. Whether we can agree to walk together as Jesus has called us to walk together, believing His promises Obeying His commands, being faithful in what He has asked of us. If we get in the Word of God together and we all yield to His Spirit as we get in His Word and pray, I can promise you a church where people are doing that is a church that's going to be unified. But I want to tell you, it's as much up to you as it is to me. I'm not the keeper of unity in this church. In many ways, you are. With what you do with His Word. And whether you choose to be obedient to it. Because Paul finishes and he says, listen, I want you to understand some things through three questions that I'm basically going to ask. And he, he starts off with, uh, what, and I love these questions. He says, let me ask questions of you guys. He says, has Christ been divided? What's the obvious answer? No, Christ isn't divided. 
So why would we be divided? We're supposed to be in who? In Christ. If we're filled with the Spirit, don't we have? I mean, think about what the Bible says. It says we have the same Spirit. We have the same faith. We have the same Lord. We have the same baptism, right? He goes on and on and on. And he says the same, the same, the same, the same, the same. And if that is who is working in us, guess what's going to happen? He says Christ hasn't divided. So if there's a division in the church, he's saying that's on you. And then I love it because the second question, he says, did Paul die for you? He says, why are you following man? It doesn't matter what man has done for you. It doesn't matter who baptized you. It doesn't matter who was your pastor growing up. It doesn't matter who, who your favorite author is. It doesn't matter who you align with and agree with most doctrinally uh, and who your favorite speaker or author is. None of that matters. I believe truly today that there are a lot of people that would probably turn over in their grave if they knew what's been done in their name. Let me go ahead and tell you, John Calvin wasn't interested and having some theology that forever for the rest of eternity, someone would say, I'm a Calvinist, I'm a Calvinist, I'm a Calvinist, I'm a Calvinist. You know what he wanted them to say? I'm a Christian. I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. I believe that Luther, I believe that Wesley's, all of them probably would have been like, what in the world are you doing in our name, with our name? It was never about our name. It was always supposed to be about what? Christ. And so Paul says, I wish I hadn't baptized anybody because, and, and listen, that's not him saying baptism isn't important or he doesn't appreciate or love baptizing as a pastor. What he's saying is, listen, I hate that it's caused any kind of division that someone would think for a second that they've been baptized into Paul. I don't baptize into my own name, he says. He says, when you were baptized, you were baptized into whose name? The name of Christ. And he's saying, so guess who owns you? Guess whose you are? You're not Paul's. And I'm not yours. You know what he's saying? We're Christ's. And that's why he'll finish in verse 17. As the musicians are coming, he says in verse 17, he just sums all of this up. Because he says, for Christ did not send me to baptize. Now see, right there, that could cause a schism in the church. Because there are those people that would immediately want to rebel against that and go, well, wait a minute. What do you mean Christ didn't command you to baptize? Paul, do you not know the Great Commission? Paul, do you not know that Jesus, the last thing that he said to all of us was that, you know what? All authority has been given unto me in heaven, on earth. Go and make disciples and do what? Baptize. That's an imperative. That's a, we could sit there. You see how quickly you could even, instead of trying to slow down and understand what Paul is saying, What Paul is saying is baptism isn't of primary importance. If it was, you would think that, you know what, i got to follow him because he baptized me. He's saying, listen, I would rather have not done one baptism if it would make you think of me more than it would make you think of who? Jesus. You're baptized into the name of Jesus. And so you know what he says in verse 17? He says, listen. I didn't come with all this eloquent speech. You can read it for yourself. He says, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but he sent me to what? To preach. My main task, my main goal, the apostle Paul is saying, that it is to preach. And I, I believe that what Paul is saying is that, listen, he doesn't care who baptizes. You ever notice that we don't make it? I mean, some churches would split over, and we had people leave over the fact that a pastor would dare let a parent baptize his child. 
That's crazy. Paul's saying, listen, I, didn't, I wasn't called to baptize. I was called to what? To preach. And after preaching, if there's an opportunity to baptize, I'm going to do it in obedience to Christ. But my calling is to preach Christ. And look at how he says he's going to do it. Not in cleverness of speech. He's saying, I'm not doing this to be eloquent. I'm not doing this to sound good. I'm not doing this to gain a following. I'm not trying to be the best preacher. So that you would follow me and remember me. What does he say? The reason I'm doing what I'm doing is so that the cross of Christ would not be made void. Whenever we make this more about us and less about the cross of Christ, think of the damage that we are doing to the spiritual lives of people. And so I want to close with this. In Galatians 5.15, I love the way that Paul says it. He puts it so plainly. Paul said, if you keep biting and devouring each other, watch out or you'll be destroyed by each other. Folks, that's the last thing I'd want to see happen here at Hepzibah. There's enough enemies without. We don't need enemies from within. And we have to guard the unity of this church. And so I'm going to ask you today, as we go into this invitation, if you need Christ, He's always ready to forgive. He's ready to give you new life if you'll place your faith in Him. If you'll seek His forgiveness and surrender your life to Him, I promise you He will save you from your sins. Believe that He died for you, was buried and rose again. Christ wants to save and he says pray repent believe surrender to me and i'll give you new life so much of this today church guess who it's for it's for us in this room the church will you help me guard the unity of this body because unified god will do exceedingly and abundantly more we than we could ever ask or imagine we will see this god of the impossible do so many things. But we got to keep the unity, church. Father, I just ask you today, prick our hearts, Lord. Show us who we are in this. Lord, I know how many times in my life I've been guilty of the factions, guilty of the self-righteousness, guilty of wanting my way, guilty of not considering others better than myself and putting their needs before my needs. And Father, I pray that you would help me to live differently, that you would help this church, these people, they are the church, to live differently. So Lord, as we go into this time of invitation, prick our hearts, show us, shine a light deep into our hearts and let us see who we are. Let us see whether we're guarding against division or Are we in quiet ways and hallways and phone conversations the source of division? Will we be committed to each other when we're getting it right? And will we be committed to each other when we're struggling to get it right? Will we love others enough to confront them in love and to help us 
to grow together. So, Lord, do a work in our hearts as we pray today. Speak to the hearts of your people and convict them and change them. And, Lord, may you begin in me. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you.